who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming to hang out with us here on Reppin. I'm Evelyn, your host. I'm incredibly excited about my next guest. She was a trailblazer when she created and served as the sole executive producer of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, one of the most popular and beloved series of the 90s. In doing so, she was the first woman to succeed in a singular capacity in the traditionally male-dominated arena of one-hour drama showrunners. Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman was a series set after the Civil War and starred Jane Seymour as Dr. Michaela Quinn, a doctor from Boston who moves her practice to a remote area of the Western frontier that has never seen a woman doctor. She masterfully mixed exciting stories with substance as the show tackled socially important issues like sexism, racism, which are still relevant today. The series received numerous Emmy and People Choice Award nominations and won several of each, plus a Golden Globe Award. Her other credits include The Trials of Rosie O'Neill and A Cry for Help, The Tracy Thurman Story. Her life and career took a dramatic turn when she was catastrophically injured in a car crash and suffered traumatic injuries. She has been in a long-term recovery, but she has made incredible strides and she's back. She's here and she's gonna tell us how she fought to create a series that was entertaining without compromising values and integrity. How she opened doors for other women producers that came up behind her and how she's working on rebooting this beloved series. My guest didn't just break barriers, she smashed them. She is the talented and unstoppable Beth Sullivan. It's so good to see you. I want to get right to it because there's so much I want to talk to you about. 
You've done so much with your career. I mean, you created, wrote, and was the executive producer of one of the biggest television series in the 90s, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. You know, it's a show I love, and um, it's super popular back then and now. We're going to definitely get into it. Can you tell me one story about when you first said, I know I'm a storyteller and I'm going to become a filmmaker. Well, this filmmaker part came before the storyteller part. When I was at UCLA, I was undergraduate. I, w- I was um, a uh, anthropology major and a history minor. I started to become more savvy politically. And I realized someone said to me, you know, they said, anthropology major, some political friend of mine, they said, well, you can't be an anthropologist. I said, why not? He goes, well, they're just, you know, all they do, all the only place you, they work for is all these big companies going out there and making the world safe for them to, you know, basically, you know, acculturating all these people so that they can be oppressed. And I said, God, you're right. You know, I don't want to be an instrument of that. Right. And uh, so I started thinking, what can I do? And then I thought, I've seen so many great documentary films that kind of inspired me. Right. And I thought, well, that's what I could do. I could make documentary films about anthropology, anthropological documentaries. So I go shopping over to the the film school and they said, oh, well, it's hard to get in the film school. Right. You can transfer. It'll take about a year, though, if we accept you. I said, "Okay." So I went through this whole process. I had to wait for a year. And while I was doing that, I was pretty sure I felt, well, I was always very confident. That's one thing. I mean, some people would call it arrogant, but, you know, but whatever. I always knew that I could do whatever I started to do. So I thought, well, I'm going to get in. So what do I do for a year? And I found out that you could take survey classes. All the classes that were open to anybody were the history classes. You could go in and watch four hours of movie movies in the morning and four hours of movies all afternoon and take two history classes. It was called the history of cinema. Well, I took I took American cinema in the morning and world cinema in the afternoon. So I just got I just saturated myself with eight hours of movies a day for a year. That's a good deal. <laughs> yeah, well, by the t- it was a great deal. So by the time I started, I had seen every fucking film there was. It seemed, <laughs> or at least I felt it. I felt like I had. So I was like ready, but I came at it from that angle, like I was going to be a filmmaker. So I got a long way in that. And then I got this job at Fox as a story analyst. And then I was a development executive. The moment of, of realizing I was a, a storyteller was really not my moment. It was, it was somebody else's moment. I was complaining actually about something about that. I said, oh, I've got to read through it. He said, why do you even do that shit? Right. You sit and tell people how to write better when you could do it better yourself. Right. I said, God, do you think so? I mean, like I was that kind of really a naive person. I st- and I, you know what? My son will tell you, he'll tell you that I still am, you know, that I still have that same propensity. And I go, really? You know, God, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess I could. They'll like, go, oh, I'm going to quit my job. So impulsively, which I also am, I just quit my job. Without, a, without any writing job, without even a script to show. And uh, fortunately, a boss of mine had gotten an overall deal at CBS. And I went to lunch with him and I told him I quit my job to become a writer. And he said, well, what are you, you going to do that? I said, I don't know. I mean, you tell me. He said, well, you want to try to do something through my deal? And I said, sure. He, I, he said, well, pitch me some ideas. That is so cool. But that's not when you pitch the show, right? I mean, c- can you take me to the birth of the idea of the show? Well, in 89, I had two two uh, television movies on, one on CBS and one on NBC. The NBC one, the Tracy Thurman story, Cry for Help, that was the one that, that made the big splash that year. They both were did very well in the top whatever. So at this point, you were a marquee writer. I was good enough. And I mean, I, was, I wasn't as big as a lot of people. There were people that were, I had revered and, you know, I thought were much bigger. But anyway, I, I was certainly in the ballgame. I had impressed inadvertently 
someone who was very important. Christy Welker was a lovely uh, and is, a, is still a lovely person and producer. She was uh, a producer that I knew in the business. I helped her fix a script of hers. And I, and I said, no credit. I just want, I'll help you to get it in shape and go do it. And she was lovely. And we had a really nice time working on it. And uh, inadvertently, in the course of it, I had some meetings at her house. She was married to Jeff Sagansky, who was president of CBS at the time. So, yeah, I met him like that. I mean, it was just in passing. But she must have put in a good word for me when he was trying to think of a writer to do something that he had just given a go to because Sharon Glass had a Sharon Glass Cagney. Yes. Had a um, a put pilot uh, and six on the air commitment from CBS. Right. Um, after Cagney. Yeah, I had written a TV movie for her manager. She uh, got me involved in that and loved what I did. And so when it came time for Sharon to do this one hour thing that, that they they went to the network and pitched this idea, a really good idea. What was the idea? Uh, the idea was what turned out to be uh, Rosie O'Neill, the trials of Rosie O'Neill. Okay. Make a long story short, I ended up writing it and creating it. I ran the first season and then I went to Jeff and said, Jeff, well, gee, I mean, could I do something else for you? And he said, of course, just create one of your own. I said, really? I said, I've never, you know, God, I, I never done that. He said, well, you just did it. I said, oh, yeah, right, you just did it. And he said, um, so go ahead and do it again. I said, oh, all right. Well, I said, can it be anything I want? And he said, yeah, anything you want. You've earned it. And I said, wow. Uh, he said, but how about something like that movie, Sarah Plain and Tall? They just had a movie that was on the air with Glenn Close. It was a, it was one of the first things that feature people had crossed over. She got Christopher Walken to do this book that she loved with her. And it was a lovely television movie, but it was a breakthrough television movie because it was movie stars doing it. And So wait, and, wait a second, uh, Beth. Yeah. So essentially, you're talking to Jeff and Jeff essentially just said, would you like to create a show on your own? Oh, absolutely. It's that it's that rarefied. That's why I'm saying it's not exactly. That's I, awesome. didn't, I didn't get a bulldozer and break the gate down. You know, <laughs> he said, well, why don't you do something on your own? I said, well, can I? Blah, blah, blah. He said, sure, go ahead. I said, well, what do you, you know? What do you want? He said, well, I don't know what I want. <laughs> and he said, well, I said, what do you need? And he said, well, you know, I guess I need a, a one hour family drama, sort of something like that Sarah Plain and Tall thing. That's doing really well. OK, the movie was good. He said, if you did something like that, I think it might, you know, maybe it has a chance. I said, you got it. Let me pinch myself. I saw Sarah Plain Tall. It's about an older woman in a period piece who is out on, struck out on her own, you know, in the world and, and, and having to deal with sexism and, 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 and everything else. And, and I said, is that okay that I go away and do that? And he said, he said, yep. So when Jeff said this to you, how did that hit you? He had a lot of respect for me and he liked me and we could disagree. I mean, fiercely and wholeheartedly and, but always friendly. And always, you know, on the up and up and never did it soil the water of being pals. It was a really lovely thing. I mean, I look back on it. I don't even know that I appreciated it at the time as much as I should have. But that was the case. And and he just said, you know, you're going to deliver for me. So do this thing and make it make it work. I said, you got it. So when Jeff gave you this opportunity, how did you come up with Dr. Quinn? I said, so something like that. I, I said, a, a period piece with a with an older woman in the lead. I said, it can be any period. And he said, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, he don't know what he was. He didn't know. And he said, I guess. And I said, I said, well, any, anything I want, I mean, she could be do any kind of franchise, you know, right. I mean, 
He said, well, you know, one of the ones that makes sense. And I said, well, that would be a doctor or a lawyer. He said, yeah, okay. And so then I went home and said, all right, it's a period piece, any, t- any time in, of history that I want. And I think I'm more interested in medicine than law, although I like law. Right. And I love the post-Civil War years because that was when women came out of the Civil War pissed off that they didn't get the vote. They had been fighting for decades to get it, and they they were discriminated against. You know, it was a time when a lot of women sort of struck out on their own and pushed their way into occupations and colleges and said, all right, we're just taking up the bull by the horns. We're not, we're not waiting for anybody to, to, to bestow anything on us. We're going out and doing it. And that was the idea in my mind. And I said, so, I'm alive in 1867, and... I'm late 30s, okay, which I was, but I was 1867. What the fuck would I have done? <laughs> I said, well, it would have been a profession. And there was only two that women were even breaking into, which was law. And that's so why I picked medicine. I said, okay, what's going to make it have that kind of characters that he's talking about who are not city people? They're, you know, I said, well, it's going to be something out west. So a woman doctor who goes west and where there aren't any doctors. It was not a very far jump to go from, you know, that to to thinking of pushing the envelope as much as possible. As a dramatist, I knew that the more extreme you make things, you know, that, you know, more difficult the circumstances, the more conflict you're going to have, the more interesting drama you're going to have. So I said, all right, let's put her in some really, you know, difficult situation. She's she thinks she gets a job and she gets there and they tell her to go fuck herself, you know. (laughs) But not, but not with that language at eight o'clock. You know? I know it's, it's and, eight o'clock. Um, you can't use that language. You got to tone that down a little. No, <laughs> and I know. And I mean, I had been. Rosie O'Neill was ten o'clock. I got to say tits and all kinds of stuff, and damn and hell and stuff. But I here I it was eight o'clock, and, I, and suddenly I became the queen of a clean mouth. You know, so. <laughs> but uh, and I, I and you know it never bothered me because oh, just, do you feel do you feel constricted? I said no, I, I don't. I don't. Never once have I said I need to say fuck ever. So that's how I came up with Doctor Quinn. Once I got all of it together in the scenes and everything and went back and pitched, he said, wow, okay. He is a very smart guy and he knows about writing. And so he knew it was well-written and he said, yeah, this is, this is great, you know, and people like it here and, you know, and everybody's saying that, you know, we're going to give you a, give you a pilot. And I said, great. Okay. Let's just stop for just a second. I want to put this in context. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm. 
all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So this was the 90s. And at that time, the 8 p.m. time slot on Saturday for television was a dead zone, right? Dead as a doornail. And they did not ask me to do it for Saturday night. They asked me to do a pilot, period. And there were no Westerns on TV. No Westerns had been on the air for 13 years. So here you come with a Western and you're in the dreaded time slot. They threw it away. They considered it family friendly kind of, you know, it was it was a it was just a one tiny step beyond uh, prime access. Nobody wanted to be eight o'clock. And I mean, it was hard for me to find great writers. I had to find them in very inventive ways because I couldn't get any of the top 10 o'clock writers to do the show. So Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman was a, a two hour pilot, right, that had already a lot of obstacles or, or, or strikes against it, let's say. Yeah, it had a woman in the lead, a single woman in the lead, which I think at that time on CBS, there was no other show that had a single woman in the lead. Thank you. And it was a Western. That's true. And I said, once they finally said, yes, we're going to do it, they put it on Wednesday night opposite two sitcoms. And I went to Jeff in his office, sat down and said, no, 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 no. Right. I said, you can't do that to me. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't, please don't put me there. He said, well, what do you, where, where do you want me to put you? Because there wasn't anything else. There. Yeah, oh, oh, except Saturday night. I said, put me on Saturday night at eight. And he said, you're crazy. I said, no, I'm not. I walk around every night at eight o'clock. I take a big, long walk, a two hour walk. And every house has TVs on. I, I can see the little screen in the windows. I said, I'm telling you, everybody's watching TV at eight o'clock on Saturday night. Somebody is. People are home with kids. I said, you're, you're wrong. Wait a second. Wait. Okay. So this part I didn't know, Beth. I need to go back and just make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So at that point in the 90s, I mean, I was a production assistant. Oh, no, I was still in college, I think. I was still in college. It premiered in 92, yeah. right? You were a child. <laughs> yes. But you were a young girl. <laughs> but so the eight o'clock time slot on a Saturday night was a death knell. It was beyond a death knell. It was non-existent. They threw rerun, old rerun movies right, there. But you still fought to be on Saturday night still, despite that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. And he looked at me and said, what are you doing? He said, you're crazy. And he said, and beyond that, you know, he said, you're trying to do everything. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm the one that programs it, not you. And I said, well, in this case, just take my advice. He said, I'm supposed to take your advice and program it on Saturday night. I said, hey, if it's such a stupid idea, do it and punish me. And he said, I'm not doing it to punish you. He said, I'll think about it. So that was a really good move on your part, Beth. It would have gotten buried on Wednesday night against two sitcoms. 
So here you are, you created a show, a Western, which was unheard of in the 90s. And the series centered around a woman who wasn't a teenager. Pushing 40. Yeah, on a Saturday night at eight o'clock, there's all of these strikes against this series. But before we even get to there, Beth, were you, if I remember correctly, you were also one of the very few female powerhouse creators, showrunners, writers at that time, correct? Well, I guess. I didn't think of myself that way. I had done Rosie O'Neill for a year. That's how I thought, oh, I did this thing for Jeff. And, and I, of course, I ran it because who else could run this through the writing staff? I had to be in there. Right. I mean, I, that's how I felt. But, but, you know, I didn't didn't get that I was a showrunner at all at that point. And I there were I think there were a couple of women who were. No, no, I know there were there were there were a couple of women who were much bigger showrunners with male partners. Right. There were there was nobody bigger than me that and I didn't even know this until someone told me when one when it got on the air somebody said well you're the only female showrunner to ever succeed alone yeah I said that's ridiculous and they said no it's true and I said no really and then they proved it to me and I went god son of a bitch okay I'm, I'm happy for that and I said the only thing I'd like to say about that is that it's a shame it took this long right but I'm, I'm happy to, to take that role you know I'm happy for women in general, but happy to step up to the plate. Yeah, you opened a lot of doors. Yeah, and I didn't even think of it that way. I mean, this is going to sound arrogant or whatever, but I did what I always did in my life. That was I showed up and, and said, oh, sure, I can do it. Talking about showing up. Yeah. So we talked about this series that you created that had all of these strikes against it. And then CBS kind of stunted it, right? It totally stunted it. They, they assigned in-house to do it with me and my company because I wanted I said, I want my company. They said, OK, your company can do it with in-house. For people not in television, what does in-house mean? In-house means networks have their own production entities. It's like a producing partner. So the series, they stunted it as a pilot, expecting it not to do very well. Right. Thinking that they would might blow it off as a movie or whatever, or, you know, and, and 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 then what happened was this is the, the turning point, the big turning point. Yeah. They tested it. They tested the pilot and it went through the roof in a way that nothing had ever scored that high in the history of CBS by a long shot. They scored they, they tested it a second time to see if the machine was broken. <laughs> so. It's true. Is that really true. true? I'm not lying. I'm not lying. That's great. And so we hit the we hit the ground running and I'm making these episodes, except right. he did not like one of the, I think it was the second episode, the epidemic that had all the sickness and all the, you know, okay. He didn't care for that. He called me and said, Beth, I put my all writers were all at the table. And I, I think I had three staff writers at that point. I said, what? Tell me what you're thinking. And he said, it's so depressing. It's the flu, everybody's sick. It's an epidemic. People are dying. Oh, my God. She gets sick. He said, it's just too much thickness, and there's too many scenes in the graveyard, and promise me you'll fix that. I said, I hear what you're saying, Jeff. I promise you I will look at everything you've said and do my very best to address your objections. I didn't say I would change it, okay, because I knew... As I was speaking, that I wasn't going to fucking change a thing. I loved the episodes. You know, I wasn't going to go back and edit it and everything. I thought it was fucking great. So I, <laughs> so I, I started everybody else in history later. But yeah. anyway, 
And, and I hung up the phone and my writers looked at me and went, oh, God, Beth, oh, it's so depressing. I said, what are you talking about? What do you mean it's so depressing? I said, are you kidding? I got up, went to the huge white thing that we put all our stories on the, the board. What do you call those big whiteboards? Yeah, whiteboard. yeah. I went up to the top of, the, of our story whiteboard and I wrote across it in giant letters across it, more scenes in the graveyard. <laughs> I said, does that explain what my position? And they said, oh, I get it. Write the show that we came to write. I said, exactly. I'm going down with my ship, not somebody else's. Yes. But so when Dr. Quinn premiered the two hour pilot, it went, it would rated off the the charts. Yes. Um, off the charts. Let me ask you this. When you were getting a lot of the, I guess I'm going to call this naysayers. Uh, people that said a Western can't, you know, succeed. It's going to be at eight o'clock. It's a death knell. You know, when you were faced with knowing that it, it had all of these major red flags before it premiered, what compelled you to keep going with your vision? I'll tell you what. Okay. The very thing that my, my biggest piece of advice yeah. to anyone who wants to do this yeah. is find out what's going on in the world learn what's really happening, learn why, learn what's important, learn what you feel about it, what your position and point a part is in all of that, how you can do something important right? That's, that's meaningful. And when you finally have a meaningful, important thing to say, how to translate it well into film. And then once you do that, you, you go forth and you stick to it. And you say, this is important because I know it's right. It's the right thing to do. And I'm going to do it no matter what. And that is what's required of any great success. Every behind every great success is someone who believes in it. And I'm willing, have to be willing just to live my life. I have to be willing to, to take that dice and roll them and see what hit, what, what comes up. Is it going, are people going to get my brilliance at this point or are they not? Right. And if, you know, and is it going to be programmed wrong? Or isn't it? I don't know any of those things. I can't control all the elements. Um, but the bottom line is uh, the one thing I can control is me and the quality of my 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 principles and the quality of my work. And so that's what I do. And that's what I advise anybody to do. Control and the things that you can control. Be in charge of those things. Be responsibly in charge and do the greatest job you can do. And then let the chips fall where they may. And and I'm going to tell you that probably they're going to fall in a pretty good place or else you're at least going to feel good about yourself. Beth, you know, I think it's one of the best series out there. It was entertaining. The characters were great. The cast was fantastic. And now that I am a producer, I love it as a producer and have a different appreciation for the writing, the production value, which was awesome. And I think you really struck a great balance between story and substance. Through the series, you tackled a lot of very, very socially important issues in a very story-driven way, which I loved. But yeah, can you can you list some of the themes and the social issues that the series addressed? Well, yeah, thank you for and thank you first of all for your praise for the I show. The I, I really appreciate I it. I love it. You know I do. Well, thank you. As we started out, I had things that were very, very important in the front of my mind that I and I thought, well, let's let's do as many as we can right up front. I mean, the pilot had, you know, grappled with racism and grappled with the extinction of Native Americans and grappled with sexism. And, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I was taking, you know, those things on really, really full bore. 
as the show went on and I felt like I had a more room to do it, I was like, well, sure, great, let's go for it. And we started introducing other things. And like by the time we got to the the thing that was the hardest of all in, at that time, it, it may seem funny now, but, but at that time it was still really much more difficult to approach, was homosexuality. Right. And we didn't really get to take that on until the very last season, but we did. We dealt with uh, prejudices against religions, uh, anti-Semitism, right. you name it, being deaf, being disabled, you name it, we, we did it. So the series was really successful. It ran for six seasons. It's this beloved series. I know the show is still in syndication. Can you talk about how popular the show was and still is? And why do you think that continues? I think it's still in 60 countries. So it's never really stopped overseas. And here, there's the demand has been, the response when they do put it on has been good enough that it keeps getting put into syndication, even here in the United States, uh, has never been out of syndication here. And I think it's because it speaks to just the universal, the most universal truths. I, I, I said, let's deal with premises. Every, every show had to have a premise. My writers would tease me about that. They go, oh, Beth, oh, God, I have to have a premise, don't I? <laughs> and they'd come and say, they'd pitch a story to me. And I say, yeah, but what's it about? And they'd start telling me the story. I go, no, 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 what's it about? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, about, okay, okay. And let's see, a premise, like, what do you mean? What's it going to, uh, yes, what's it going to say? What's the one line idea that you want to leave? You want everybody to walk out of that theater come out or away from their television. And if somebody was standing there with a microphone and said, what was that show about? And they are going to give you, believe me, every viewer of anything is going to come out of it or away from it. And if you ask them what it's about, they're going to tell you in one line. They'll, they'll tell you. It might not be what you hoped, but you know, the whole goal is to do something brilliantly enough that they come out all saying what you wanted them to take away from it, right. but at the same time, not having, you know, fed it, spoon fed it to them, but gave it to them in a way that is entertaining and that they could reach that that conclusion themselves. Because if there is a huge responsibility in putting material out there into the world. You're trying to convince people to behave or think in a certain way, in, in my case, to be their best selves, to be to be the best of what we are as human beings. Yeah. And that was the basic driving force was how do we in every way, shape or form encourage every single person of every ilk, creed, color, whatever, to be the best person that they can be toward one another. Right. But at times when people said, oh, this thing is so heavy with meaning and, and, and trying to make a point, and some people tease us for being too politically correct. When they do that, and so I go, yeah, yeah, you know what? That's what I want to be teased for. I want to be teased for being politically correct. If as long as we're politically correct in a compelling way that people are riveted by the stories and they don't know, I mean, it's not like we're trying to trick anybody. We're just trying to write good drama. That's what that's what Aristotle said. Start with a good idea, good something to say, and then say it well. But you have to have something to say or there's no point. The show encouraged us to embrace great values and to be the best of what we can and should be. I don't want to say that it taught us lessons, but you definitely embedded important perspectives, let's say. Well, there's nothing wrong with the there's nothing wrong with the word lesson. I think that that when you if you just if you'd have taken Aristotle aside and sat him down way back 2000 years ago and said, "Well, what's the point of doing these dramas?" He said he would tell you to teach people lessons. 
I mean, that's what that's we're that's what we are. That's why people write books. That's what you look at a novel. You find the premise. I mean, Steinbeck wasn't sitting there just spinning his wheels. He was teaching us important lessons. You know, I mean, all the great writers, Shakespeare. It, there was always a premise in there, at the very least, a premise, if not much more. And you know, history lessons and all kinds of stuff. And as much as you can do and still make it feel like a great drama then you're just succeeding as a great dramatist. You probably had a lot of pushback at the start of the show, but I'm so glad that you stuck to your guns, your creative vision, and you brought us this incredible series. It really was storytelling at its best. And that was another thing. In the 90s, you know, this show, this very successful show was being helmed by two women, one off camera, you as the executive producer, and the other was Jane Seymour on camera. Oh, yeah, we were we were a force to be reckoned with. You still are. I think you really created something quite unique in many ways. It's a Western. The lead is a female character, Michaela Quinn, who was more of a mature character. The show really embraced great values, addressed socially important and tricky subjects. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Thank you. It made it it made it okay to 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 be wholesome and say something and and not be just trashy. Yeah, absolutely. Another dynamic that I want to get to is so here you guys are. You're on this huge hit show. It's led by two women and there is this stereotype that women can be really catty. But here you are, you and Jane have had a decades-long friendship. Can you talk about how special that is? Jane came on at the last moment. Very last. I got a call on Friday, Friday before we were set to shoot the following Tuesday. They said, Sigansky's on the line. I said, oh, great. He's going to tell me who, which, which test option person he wants to go with. Because we tested, we shut, we did the two test options for him that day. The, the actress, the test option is when, a, when the actress has to come in and read the part. You're doing it for the president and big actors will actually read. I thought, oh, well, he's made his decision. I went up there and I walk in and sit down. He says, what do you think about Jane Seymour? And I said, well, what do you mean? What do I think about Jane? What do, what do you mean? She, I said, she's, she wasn't, she's on the list of people who won't do series, right? She's only, she's only long form, right? And he said, well, her agent just called 15 minutes ago. I said, really? She doesn't want mind me saying this, but she always tells this story. She happens to be in a difficult stretch of her life and she needs something right now. And she called the network needing, you know, he called the network on her behalf, needing saying, I need a movie yesterday. And Jeff told her, told her agent, I don't have any movies going except for this two hour backdoor pilot. But it is a backdoor pilot. She'd have to sign a, all the pilots. I mean, she'd have to sign all the series stuff. And he said, oh, okay. But he said, but, you know, is it going to happen? And and there's two different sides to that. I, I there, Some people say that he said, no, definitely. And some people say, you know, I think Jeff said, I don't know, who knows, you know, but I think that probably just based on the material that, that the guy felt confident saying to Jane, it's not going to happen. Because she tells me that, that that's what he told her. Don't worry. It's a two hour pilot, but it's not going to happen. You mean go, not go to series? not going to go to series. And so it's just a two hour. You got it right now. Let's do it. And she said, well, I don't, you know, I like it, you know, because her father was a doctor. She said, I liked it enough that I said to him, I don't care if it does. So she liked it from the get go. She hit the ground running. I mean, we just clicked. It was like sisters, you know, I mean, we're in this together and, and we were just very, very tight from moment one. And you, and you guys have been friends for how long now? 
Well, since 90, uh, the very last days of 92. You know, we've been through a lot of life, a lot of children. We both had twins three months shy of each other. On the show, too. Yes. So, Beth, there's been a lot of talk, and Jane has been very public about this, that you guys have been working on rebooting the show. But I also know that the road has been a very long and hard one for you, having survived a very serious accident. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and also about your collaboration with Jane? Yeah, I, you know, called her and said, you know, what's going on? And we got together and, and she was very kind to me. I was coming out of a very, very serious injury. Jane was seeing me at the very beginning of my ability to be aware after, after years of a lack of awareness with a brain injury, which is very, very painful emotionally. And I mean, it's very hard to step back into consciousness gradually. And the people who help you do it have to be super patient and love you a lot. Because otherwise, it's a turnoff. Because right frontal lobe, right frontal lobe behavior is usually boisterous and offensive and it's unreasoned and it's impulsive and, and it's not well thought out. It's usually imprudent. And um, you can make an asshole of yourself. And, you know, I was capable of doing that even before I had a brain damage. But, but you know, with the brain damage was, you know, you know. Ugh. So anyway, you had to really, you know, deal with me with love to get through that earliest period of that, which was when I came back down to L.A. And she was there. I know that it's been extremely difficult for you having survived such a serious accident and suffering the injuries that you, you suffered. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about the road back, your recovery, and how it's led you to a reboot? 2017, I started to feel like I might be able to write again. And so a friend of mine did a project with me totally out of the goodness of her heart and helped me prove that I could screenwrite again. And I came back against every odd that you can think. Yeah, I mean, that I'm even able to speak this way. So people, there's a lot of people on earth who would tell you it's not possible. By 17, I came back in 15. And in 17 was when I, only by then did I say, I think I can write. And so I wrote a treatment for a reboot, rewrote it and rewrote it until I felt that it was really good and gave it to Jane. And she called and said, oh, my God, Beth, this is brilliant. Now, I didn't expect that because I was really tenuous. I didn't, you know, I didn't know if I still had brilliance in me. I was every moment was, you know, the first for me. And I went, oh, God, I'm so relieved. I'm afraid to disappoint you. She said, oh, my God, no. Oh, my God, we have to do this. Oh, let's figure this out. She said, come and have lunch with me and Joe and William, who were both in the show. So I went out there and um, we hung out outside in her beautiful place. And had this lovely meal and all got really back in, in, in tune. And they were really, you know, responding to it as well. Uh, I said, well, look, if you guys are this jazzed, I'm, I'm thrilled. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do this. Let's do it. I said, well, first of all, I think we need a, um, a production company that, that li literally a hands-on, you know, production company that can deficit finance, that has the, that has, that has the setup. And so I said, let's bring somebody in. And they said, she said, well, who? And I said, I think my friend Dan Paulson qualifies. Now let's form the company. So we hired an attorney and formed a production entity so that we could go pitch it. We wanted to go and say, into wherever we were going and say, we're the production company. We're making it. So you guys are working on it. 
Indeed, indeed. And it's going to happen. Jane and I and Dan are going to make sure that it happens. We cannot wait. So it's safe to say that the the band is back, to, so to speak. Joe Lando, yeah, William Shockley. Everybody's back. Every single actor that we called, and I called everybody, were thrilled. Every single person said yes. And some who surprised me. Some who'd gone on to other lives like Chad, Chad Allen. But he's going to do it. He's, That's awesome. And I called him. I said, Chad, I, I said, look, I know you have a whole other life. Da, da, da. And I said, this is a kind of a crazy thing, but I certainly would not ask you. And I don't want to insult you. I don't want you to hear it happening. But, you know, but I know you're not going to say it. He said, no, you're wrong. I want to do it. I said, what? He said, I've got my PhD. Would I like to stop now? Pause. Yeah, let's do it. That's so exciting. And I was like so thrilled. My first long shot, I thought, was also Sean. I thought, oh, he's he's in college. He's doing other things. Sean and I, said, yeah. Sean Tuvey's on. Everybody's there. Everybody's there. That's amazing. Jessica's all all over it. And just for fans, if they, if they need to understand any conflict about that, there is no conflict when you're the producer and writer you know, of a show. And the last person who played the character when you went off the air is the person that resumes the role. You don't go anywhere else with it, guys. Just how it works. And that's what's humanely and with respect done in the business. And I adore both Colleen's, both people who who played Colleen. I, I adore them both in completely different ways, but equally. I'm super excited. I can't wait to have this back on air. Now, why do you think a show like this is still relevant? Um, because we, we, I think that's what I mentioned earlier. I was always trying to really deal with the most universal truths about the human condition and what we need to know about it in order to be good human beings. And that goes across, you know, time, across cultures, across the world, across, you know, countries. I wanted, I've always wanted to, to speak to as big an audience as possible. You always want to think that you're, that you're speaking to everyone. And you always should treat it as though you're speaking to everyone and and do it in a way that's as, as, as accessible as possible. And the unfortunate thing is these issues of sexism, racism, discrimination, it's still so unfortunately present. Oh, everywhere. So, Beth, we have a signature sign off here. OK, let me know who you are and what you represent. This is Beth Sullivan, and I represent the best interest of the viewing audience as obligatory to my involvement in the television business. And that means my involvement means as a writer, as a producer, on all levels, my duty is to represent the best interest of the people in the audience, of the people that the, that the material is going out to. That's my obligation. Can I just, can I do a qualifier? I put down there, some people might shudder at the seeming arrogance of such a statement when in fact, it's just the bottom line for me. The fact that so many have veered from that line is no compliment to me, but rather a statement about the times in which we live. In other words, I think that it's it's not such a compliment to me as it is uh, a a lack of a compliment for the quality of of television. Uh, Fred Rogers and I, we when we met, we immediately immediately resonated because we both, as Fred put it, he said we're both in the television business for the same reason. We try to make it what it can be. And and just for the audiences, I know Beth is saying this for because she knows him. Fred Rogers. That's Fred Rogers oh, as Mr. in Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Mr. Rogers, the Mr. Rogers, the, the, one of the, the, the one of the greatest people I've ever met in my whole life and who I was so lucky to have befriend me and, and to be able to call my friend. 
Yeah, honestly, Beth, there's not many people that I would say this to, but you are truly a gangster in the best way (laughs) to roll with Mr. Rogers. Can't even imagine anything cooler than that. Love and thanks to Beth Sullivan for hanging out. I loved my time with her. And thank you, Beth, for creating such a great series and for opening doors for all of the women creatives that came up behind you. Next up, Artie Sequera will be here. She's a Food Network star, television personality, author, and producer. Did you know that? So we're going to talk about all of this and more. I'm Artie Sequera. I'm coming to hang out on Reppin, so don't miss it. Reppin is on all top podcast platforms, so let's go. Subscribe, share, and leave a review. You can always reach us on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and follow us on Instagram, Reppin underscore podcast. You'll see who's coming up next and get exclusive behind-the-scenes content. Thanks always to Nelson Pinero, my musical composer and technical director, for all of his time and talent. And always, love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye. Bye.